entire world is watching the presidential election in Iran. For Today's signs other of top story, what could be an historic opening with Iran. With the U.S. and Iran on the brink. Bloodshed the in the streets of Iran. The mass At protests least. in Iran are showing no signs of ending. This is Iran Uncovered, a podcast by Nufti. And in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Cameron Consarinia. The political structure of the Islamic Republic in Iran is, for many, a mystery, or as Churchill said, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It presents itself as having some systemic components of other normal democratic states, including purported diplomats and charades it attempts to pass off as elections. Yet it maintains a massive murky cabal in which most real decisions are made. Many apologists in the West present it as being on par with Western democracies. Flawed, but moving forward. The Iranian people, however, seem to disagree. To find out more, we'll discuss it today with a veteran Iranian journalist. She's the publisher and editor of Kahan London and Kahan Life, and she was the London producer and chief correspondent for the Voice of America Persian service and moderated a bi-weekly roundtable discussion on Manoto Television called This Week. She is a trustee of the Foreign Press Association in London and the Persian Educational Foundation, and she has served as the vice president and president of the Foreign Press Association in London and was a judge of the United Kingdom's Parliamentary Press Gallery Awards, presented to journalists considered to have made the greatest contribution internationally to the protection, promotion, and perpetuation of parliamentary democracy. She also co-edited the Foreign Policy Center's Iran Human Rights Review. She is a member of Chatham House and the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and she received her bachelor's from George Washington University in Public Affairs and Government, and her master's from Georgetown in International Relations and Comparative Politics. And she has worked with various international educational and philanthropic organizations. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by veteran Iranian journalist Nazanine Ansari. Nazanin, welcome to Iran Uncovered, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so very much, uh, Cameron John, for inviting me to take part in your podcast. It's it's a pleasure. We're, we, we, we're really pleased to have you. Um, as we said in the intro, oftentimes the Islamic Republic's political system is described in very many ways by many different people. I, I recently read it as being described as having, quote, a dual structure of Islamic and democratic values. Do you think that's right? Do you think Iranians see it that way? Uh, this is a very good question. And to answer it, it's important to refer to the constitution that governs the Islamic Republic and sets its legal parameter and defines the political landscape wherein the political forces can compete. Um, it's important to recall that the political factions who were involved in the 1979 revolutions uh, were basically uh, three groups. Uh, one were, of course, uh, the religious clerics. Uh, let's call them the Islamists because they were not the traditional, from the traditional uh, wing of Islam or what we had in Iran before mm. the revolution. Uh, then there were the communists, the Tuda Party, for example, and the Islamic Marxists, uh, in the guise of the Mujahideen al-Khalq. Mm. And finally, the Western-educated revolutionaries, such mm. as 
uh, you know, the current foreign minister, Javad Zarif, or Dr. Ali Akbar Salehi, who's the current head of the atomic energy organizations. They were both educated in the West. So when it came uh, to uh, writing the constitution and defining the landscape, these three forces have been actively involved. But at the end of the day, it is the constitution that defines the landscape. The preamble of the constitution states that the concept of the Islamic government is based on the governance of uh, the jurisprudence, which is the Velayat al which was at that time when it was first written, uh, provided by Mr. Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, according uh, to the preamble, it sa- uh, says that with respect, and I quote, with respect to the Islamic content of the Iranian revolution, which was a movement for the victory of the oppressed people over their oppressors, the constitution prepares the ground for continuing this revolution at home and abroad. And it specifically strives to expand international relations with other Islamic movements and people in order to pave the way for the formation of a single universal community in accordance with the Quranic verse. Mm. Now, it also defines uh, the country as administration and how it is administered according to the Quran Mm. and the traditions defined and interpreted by religious authorities. Consequently, what it says, and I quote, serious and meticulous supervision on the part of the Islamic scholars, which always refers to just men of Mm. religious law. And the objective of the government is to foster the human being in the direction of the divine order. Insofar as the citizens are concerned, there is no mention of popular sovereignty. Instead, sovereignty uh, rests with the supreme leader. And it is based on the sovereignty of the command of God and continuous religious leadership, the imamat. And that this constitution prepares the background for the actual leadership of a qualified jurisprudent who is recognized as leader and recognized, not voted for, Mm. but recognized as leader by the people um, to be uh, to uh, uh, as a leader by the people and the administration of affairs should be by those scholars who are learned in regard to God and that which he has permitted and that which he has uh, forbidden. In other words, citizens recognize rather than vote. So um, if I may just continue, um, you know, the, as far as the rights of the people are concerned, this, is, this goes into the chapter three of the constitution where um, everything, each right that is given, it is then co- becomes conditional upon being in conformity with Islamic criteria as interpreted by the, uh, in part uh, the Islamic scholars. Hmm. So, 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 so lots of reference to, to those Islamic values in principle, very little, if any, to democratic principles. But, but I guess this sort of starts immediately with 
the Islamic Revolution. The, uh, Khomeini has this famous speech where he comes back uh, and says, Man I, I will decide the government. I, I shall decide the structure. Um, and what's so interesting in, in what you just referred to um, is, is the exportation of that government outside of Iran's physical borders. It's not just in the Islamic Republic's constitution, it would seem, something for Iran, rather something for the entire world. And, and we hear this frequently from leaders of the Islamic Republic, uh, discussion of the Ummats, not the Melats, uh, meaning the, the Islamic community, not the nation of Iran. So how important is the exportation of this ideology for this regime? Uh, it is very important. Indeed, in the Constitution, once again, I go back to the Constitution, um, it describes an ideological army. Ideology is very important within this Constitution, and specifically in relation to the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. Um, and what it says, again, I quote from it, in establishing and equipping the defense forces of the country, the focus shall be on maintaining ideology and faith as the foundation and the measure. And so, again, I quote, consequently, the army of the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Pastoran Revolutionary Corps, that's the IRGC, are formed in accordance with this aforementioned objective. They will undertake the responsibility of not only guarding and protecting the borders, but also the weight of ideological mission, that is, striving for jihad on the path of God and struggle on the path of expanding the sovereignty of the law of God in the world. Again, it then refers to a Quranic verse. Hmm. So that is, uh, that is all it defined within the Constitution. I mean, for me, if I want to basically uh, decide whether it is democratic or not, I will go always to the Constitution of any country. Sure. Because at the end of the day, it, it describes the nature of that political system. No, absolutely. So in, in order to achieve some of these goals uh, that, that you just laid out within this constitutional framework, what sort of institutions has the Islamic Republic set up to achieve those aims? What are some of the critical institutions or bodies that may be less well known um, in the West? Uh, and, and what role do they play in Iran? Okay, I think most important, I think uh, most uh, of your listeners are now by now uh, familiar with the setup of the setup of the Islamic Republic, how the election is run, what is the majlis, the parliament, uh, but what they are not so much uh, might, might not be aware of is the role of the office of the supreme leader, um, which is called the Beit Rahbari, um, and uh, in my uh, estimation, it is one of the most it's the most important. Uh, office of this political system. Indeed, most of the uh, foreign policy decisions, uh, economic decisions, are taken within this uh, the office of the supreme leader. And 
the supreme leader uses it to communicate and uh, to administer orders to various uh, military, cultural, economic, and political organizations. And uh, a number of political, military, and religious advisors uh, work under this office. Uh, it has its own foreign minister, Dr. Velayati, Ali Akbar Velayati, for the longest time, was, uh, has been advising the Supreme Leader on uh, uh, foreign relations. Um, if I may also just go on a tangent, for example, up until a few years ago, uh, let, uh, the government uh, in Britain, when they wanted to negotiate uh, for the release of uh, uh, either the Marines that were taken, uh, the British Marines that were taken in Iran, uh, they would go through uh, the diplomatic channels, the diplomatic channels dictate that you have to go through the embassy and from the embassy to the foreign ministry in Iran. It is only later they found out that it is not actually the embassy that is uh, the conduit or the decision maker, but the supreme leader's office hmm. that is in a mosque uh, in Maidervale in London. <laughs> and so these are the, uh, this is the way that the Islamic Republic has been able uh, to conduct its uh, policy and foreign relations, not through conventional diplomatic channels that the international community uh, is used to, but rather opaquely uh, th uh, through its uh, various other bodies. Mm. Now, um, uh, one uh, uh, majlis parliamentarian, Ali Motahadi, uh, actually called this Beit Rahbari uh, and its influence as being so great that the parliament is effectively a branch of the office of the supreme leader. Mm. So all decisions relating to whether, you know, the nuclear agreement, JCPOA, the joint, uh, uh, sorry, JCP, uh, joint comprehensive uh, plan of action, or whether to continue the war with Iraq or not, uh, we're not we're taken not by the regular uh, you know branches of government, but rather through the Beta Rahbari. And interestingly, it is very complex. It is multi-layer. It has its own special advisors, and it is led by Khamenei's sons. Um, so uh, that is why. Iran is at this juncture uh, in a state of chaos. Decisions are being made in various areas, but at the end of the day, it is the office of the Supreme Leader and the Supreme Leader and now his sons who are responsible for setting uh, the way forward. And, and, and this, based on how you described it, this is not necessarily the result of of. of factious infighting or this group against this group. I mean, this this is the way that the system, uh, the Islamic Republic itself is set up, correct? It, it endows so much power in the Supreme Leader, in the Veloyat uh, de Is that right? I mean, so much is made yes. in the West, it, you know, of every time Javad Zari flies to Brussels or to Geneva or to um, New York for the United Nations, much is made of Iran's foreign minister, but 
based on what you're saying, this is really being decided elsewhere. And, and Mr. Zarif is, I don't know, merely a puppet? Or what, what, is, the, what is the function of having people like uh, Javad Zarif, who, at least on TV, play the part of diplomat, if the decisions are actually made elsewhere? Well, as I told you, you know, um, in the beginning, there were uh, forces that came together to bring about a revolution. And these political elite have remained on the scene ever since. And they each play their own part. But the con- let's go back to the constitution. The constitution that is governing Iran right now uh, is not the same constitution that Mr. Khomeini uh, was, uh, you know, was uh, uh, governing by. In April 1989, he appointed a 20-man assembly to revise the constitution. And, and that's 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 20 men, right? No, all men. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I mean, that is uh, another important uh, fact to understand is that women are not allowed, are not considered to be able as Rajal, as the elite, political elite, to be able to either run for the office of presidency, and for sure they will never be a supreme leader, a female supreme leader, <laughs> as, as it is right now. But um, in 1989, uh, Mr. Khomeini appointed a 20-man assembly to revise the uh, uh, constitution. And... The assembly was only completed its work after Khomeini's death. And it amended the constitution in very important ways. Uh, To begin with, his allies, Mr. Khomeini's allies, and specifically like uh, those, the original elite of the revolution, like uh, Mr. Rafsanjani and them, they didn't want, uh, they feared that the office of the supreme leader would be weakened after his death and that the sh- power would shift to those elected officials, those uh, uh, that uh, were either Western-educated or uh, the communists, MEK. So they they came and um, the post, uh, at, in the beginning, there was the Supreme Leader and the Prime Minister. So they abolished uh, the post of uh, Prime Minister, and his powers were then vested in the office of the uh, president. Judicial authority was vested in one single individual rather than the council of five jurists. And because Mr. And also let me go back to the direction of national and radio television broadcasting uh, services, Uh, rather than being under the control of a three-man council, uh, it was, you know, shifted to one individual uh, appointed by the supreme uh, leader, and at the same time, a new supreme national security council, which was headed, which is headed by the president, and includes representatives from the foreign ministry, military, and security services, was created to deal with matters of internal security and external security. Because um, Mr. Raf, and we now know this, that Mr. Khamenei at that time did not want to be a supreme leader. He knew that he wasn't able because he was not, he lacked the necessary religious qualifications mm. to become supreme leader. It was Mr. Raf Sanjani who actually uh, 
pressured him into accepting. So at that time, the Islamic Republic, uh, the control was uh, divided between, on the one hand, Mr. Rafsanjani, and the other hand, Mr. Khamenei. And uh, it was a very carefully managed uh, arrangement, and the qualifications of the supreme leader were downgraded to allow for the post to devolve not to one of the leading Islamic jurists, but to someone like Mr. Khamenei. And so we see a shift into the Islamic Republic, but also at the same time, the powers vested in for the supreme leader uh, were increased. So a lot of Iranians talk about that uh, transformation as uh, becoming from a velayat to uh, to a velayat mutlaq, uh, which is a totalitarian velayat faqi, a right. total velayat faqi mm-hmm. rule of jurisprudence, and that is what we have today. Interesting, and and, and so on. The regime, however, does make uh, and, and going back to that third faction um, that you referred to as yeah. as being the revolutionaries, perhaps those who are Western educated, they uh, put some components into the regime that are very frequently discussed in the West, that the, the elections, uh, although, you know, final decisions rest with the supreme leader, and, and he, um, as you said, is not elected by the people, but um, what was what was the, the, the word you used? Re- recognized, was it, by the people? Yes, uh, recognized rec- by the people. <laughs> I'm not sure how that's gauged, um, but, but there are, are seemingly some uh, democratic components to, or at least those that are called democratic components, to the Islamic Republic system. And we talk about them a lot in the West. The Western media often talks about um, elections in Iran, the elections for um, uh, for the presidency, the elections for the parliament. We, we just had those a few months ago um, when the coronavirus crisis was, was, was rolling through Iran. Um, but those elections are quite different from elections that you may have in Britain than those we may have in the United States. There, there, there are some hurdles, uh, it appears, to partaking in those elections. And, and we don't have to get into the corrupt outcomes or, you know, 2009 uh, and, and how the elections are basically stolen. But but I'm interested in the run-up to those elections. And I think our listeners would benefit from knowing what, what happens before one actually becomes a candidate in this election. And I know the Guardian Council uh, plays a role there. What, is, what does that look like? What's the vetting process for candidates? You mentioned the Guardian Council, and the Guardian Council plays a, the key role because uh, uh, it is constitutionally mandated 12-member council uh, that has a lot of power and influence. And uh, it, uh, it decides on who can run uh, for elections, whether they are good Muslims, whether they have been good citizens under the Islamic Republic, uh, specifically whether uh, when it comes to the, uh, to the election of the president to make sure that they are men, women can run, not run for the office. Uh, elections in Iran, uh, although, for example, uh, women are very politically active. They cannot become presidents. But um, once candidates are formally uh, allowed to run, uh, 
then they can gain equal access to state media uh, and have platforms during their campaign. But uh, once again, the problem is that nobody can run without the approval of the Guardian Council, which itself is not only unelected, but uh, it's a lot, it is firmly in, uh, in the conservative camp. So while anyone can register as a candidate, only a ch- chosen few are let through the gates. Uh, so um, that is uh, the problem of the mm. election process in Iran. It, it, it reminds me of, of, of a quote that one of the regime insiders, this was from a few years ago, he said, we, we do indeed have democracy. Uh, it's just democracy between those who we decide. Um, and, and it appears, based on what you said, that that, that's, that still holds true. Um, yes, uh, you're, I, it's very true, because as long as you are within the polity, as they call it, within the system, as you are, as long as you are a khudi, mm-hmm. you have you have a lot of rights, mm-hmm. because you first of all, you do believe in the divine rights of the supreme leader to guide your life. Mm-hmm. But once you do not believe in this, uh, are not part of this uh, elite or polity, you do not have any right, except when it comes to election time, election period, where you are invited to go and cast your vote for mm. uh, accepted candidates. Mm. And, and even still, where, where that vote goes, it's not always clear, as, as we've seen several times. Well, that's one of the problems of the election process in Iran. It's neither fair nor, nor it's transparent. So uh, there you go. And, and, and nor is it free. Nor is it free. Yeah. <laughs> the th- th- three big problems that, and, that any election should not have, they seem to have. But you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, if you're okay with... Um, the supreme leader guiding your life. If you're okay with the with accepting the notion that your government draws its authority uh, not from you and your peers, but rather from God, uh, and is indeed um, running the country or running the omat in a temporary state of affairs, waiting for uh, the hidden imam to return and 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 take over government, you can you can be fine. I know you speak very frequently uh, as in your role as journalist uh, and, and also as an Iranian with uh, young people, with Iranians inside the country and those in exile. This regime has been in power for 41 years now. What do you think Iranians think about the system, about the structure of the Islamic Republic? Um, what, what do you see for the future? Well, I do see a tremendous shift at the grassroots level. Uh, I can, uh, I remember the revolution, clearly revolutionary times. Uh, I can easily tell you at least 90% of people around me were pro, uh, pro the revolution. But given 40 years later, I can only say perhaps 10% are still, uh, wow. you know, uh, pro-revolution and pro-Islamic Republic. Why? Because the Islamic Republic has not been able to manage uh, the lives uh, of uh, Iranians in a very constructive way. Uh, It has been uh, misplaced priorities. The priorities for, let's take, for example, the foreign policy. There there are many uh, 
uh, experts in the West, uh, when they look, they talk about and describe the foreign policy of the Islamic Republic today, they compare it to the same ambitions uh, that uh, were there before the revolution that uh, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi had. Without realizing that before the revolution, it was the individual, the well, the well-being of that citizen that was central uh, to the, all the decision-making process in mm. Iran. At the moment, it is not. It has become clear that it is not about the welfare of that citizen, but the welfare of the Islamic Republic. The in uh, the continuation of the Beta Rahbari, mm. the continuation of the Islamic Republic, not after Khamenei, not to for new democracy, but rather to Khamenei's sons mm. and those and his appointed uh, you know heirs. Mm. So when and Iranians have spoken through election after election, they have given, they've gone and participated. In what, in whatever form, and make their voices heard, whether it be in elections or whether it be just leaving the country. Mm. Most of the youth, uh, most most of the college graduates, prefer to leave Iran than to stay in Iran. Mm. That says a lot about whether they think they are shareholders mm. in the future of a country, or whether no, mm. once again they will have to recognize a supreme leader that is not at, at the end of the day governing to their interests, but mm. rather to the interests of the polity of the Islamic Republic state. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the state of affairs that is that we now see in Iran, many are, we see uh, many of the former revolutionaries themselves uh, accepting that this form of government, this constitution, cannot continue as is. Well, and, and it's it's interesting. I think so many people who, for so long, partook in these elections, who went and, and stamped their their finger in ink and, and did so with pride, as as trying to find an outlet to exercise their their democratic rights, their natural rights, have have now taken that. Uh, that right in two in two different forms, neither of which are within the confines of the system. What one is the one you mentioned of of leaving the country and this immense brain drain we have. The other is what we've seen much more clearly in the past three years, especially. Um, it are these nearly consistent or constant uprisings and protests. We we see them in the past few days, um, and and I'd be interested in 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 seeing your perspective on how those protests have shifted. I mean, some of the chants that we hear of, you know, they, they've seemingly changed from, I want my vote back, which we heard in 2009, to I want my country back. I mean, some of the chants you hear are, you know, down with or death to the principle of down with the Islamic Republic. So that, that, that seems to be where a lot of the discourse is happening. They've sort of passed the ballot box. It's now on the street. Is that right? You are very correct. I mean, protests uh, in Iran have grown in size and scale and violence since its inception. Uh, you know, uh, in the early 1990s, we witnessed urban riots. Uh, 
1999 and 2003, we saw student protests. Um, and then the Green Mo Movement protests in 2009 concentrated mainly at most in 10 major cities. Um, then in December 2017, um, demonstrations that uh, started in the holy city of Mashhad spread to about a hundred cities uh, in 48 hours. And then we had Iran's uh, uh, nationwide protest in November 2019, which spread across hundreds of towns and cities and left 1,500 civilians uh, dead, killed by Iran's security apparatus. And also, from 2017 onwards, uh, the slogans have started to increasingly center on the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. Um, and uh, from 2019, most of the uh, slogans, I mean, most of the slogans we've been hearing is like the one specifically from last night. Last night, there were demonstrations uh, in Behbahan, in Khuzestan. They were saying, neither for Lebanon nor for Gaza. My life is only for Iran. Right. So it's the misplaced priorities of having, a, you know, an internationalist outlook and an expansionist outlook that has, you know, in a way influenced and pushed this younger generation of Iranians to say, hey, it's me, I'm Iranian and I matter. My life matters. It's, 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 it's amazing. And, and, and I mean, what, what you said, what you've taken us from the, the foundations of this system, the constitutional basis for this one man uh, in the place of God rule to the changes that the Islamic Republic has gone through to what Iranians are, are saying now um, has been immensely beneficial um, to us. I, I personally have learned quite a bit. Uh, and I'm really thankful for your expertise, for the time you've given us today. Um, you, you are certainly um, uh, a gem for, for all of us uh, in the Iranian diaspora and for Iranians at home as well. Uh, thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. Nazanin Ansari. Thank you so much, Kamran Khan You're the newer generation. You're the one. You're, it's your generation that will hopefully make us see a better Iran. Thank you. Hopefully. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you. And I hope you'll join us again. Thank you very much. Uh,